Today's TribCast is presented by the Texas Land Trust Council. Texas Land Trusts conserve natural areas, waterways, and agricultural lands in partnership with landowners and citizens to preserve Texas for future generations. Visit conservetexasland.org to learn more. Texas talking, oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking, oh, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking, tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are and Texas guys Hi, this is Pam Koloff, staff writer at Texas Monthly Magazine and executive producer of the documentary Tower, which was shortlisted this week for an Academy Award. Evan Smith taught me how to be a journalist and edited the story that served as the foundation for Tower, which movingly tells the story of UT's darkest day. Please go see the film and enjoy this week's TribCast. And now here's your host, who's one of my other journalism heroes, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here with the TribCast for the first week of December. I am joined by a wild fleet of reporters this week. No Evan, no Ross. Uh, I have usual suspect Patrick Svitek. Great band name, Usual Suspect. <laughs> yeah. You're totally Evan today. It's true. Evan is, Evan is actually texting me as we speak. So, Evan, if you're watching this, I can't respond right now. Uh, reporter Julian Aguilar. Hello. Also our Border Bureau Chief. Uh, Jim Malowitz, Howdy. investigative reporter. Hi, Jim. And uh, Alexa Ura, who covers demographics for us. Hello. All right. Uh, so Patrick has his phone in his hand, as he does every week, which means there must be breaking political news. So why don't you tell us, um, you know, we've been repeatedly on this Trump Tower watch. Why don't you tell us what you know about the latest uh, Texan to get passed up for a slot? Yeah. So the, the latest news is, according to reports, I think, in at least The New York Times and, and also by CBS News, retired four-star general uh, John Kelly is Trump's pick to, to lead the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, obviously, here in Texas, we had all been watching to see whether Congress Michael McCall uh, of Austin, a Republican from Austin, uh, you know, would would get that role. Um, what's interesting here is that McCall, especially compared to other Texans who had uh, reportedly or who are reportedly under consideration for cabinet posts, uh, McCall had pretty openly campaigned for the job. You know, uh, relatively uh, relatively short time after the election, he had said, you know, basically, I'm interested in being the Department of Homeland. Uh, Security Secretary, um, you know, he had organized support, or his team had organized support. Um, you know, he had fought back against criticism that he was not—he has not been tough enough in Congress on the issue of illegal immigration. I mean, so this had been, again, relatively speaking, a pretty open and organized campaign by McCall to get this job, and clearly, it didn't work out. Um, and know. what does that mean back home? So there'd been all this conversation sure. about, well, if McCall, you know, goes, you know, what does that mean for the seats back home? Um, yeah, I mean, there was obviously going to be a lot of Republicans lining up to, uh, you know, run in that special election if he were to go to Washington. That congressional district, I believe, you know, stretches from, you know, it touches both the Austin and Houston media markets. It's pretty, um, pretty sprawling district. Um, and so that was going to be the big uh, kind of next story if uh, McCall had been picked to be DHS secretary. Obviously, it's not going to happen. And I think the political speculation is going to turn again to whether he challenges Ted Cruz in 2018, um, because we know that McCall just in general, um, you know, through our own reporting, just our own observations, appears pretty eager to move up. He's looking for kind of his next step politically. Mm -hmm. And so I think, again, um, it's going to go back to is he going to challenge Ted Cruz in 2018? And now that DHS didn't work out, I think there's going to be a little more pressure for him to begin clearing up, you know, are you 
formally interested? Are you, you know, uh, actively considering this? Right. You, you have to imagine Cruz was probably hoping that this guy would get the get the full time slot. Yeah. Um, and just a reminder, if you're tuning in on Facebook, you can send questions our way. Uh, who are the other Texans then still in the running for some of these top spots? I mean, Jim, you've been writing about uh, Sid Miller, our uh, friendly social media happy ag commissioner. Uh, what's the latest with him? Oh, the latest with him is he has not yet gotten the call. He uh, told a conservative radio host in Dallas that yesterday. So that's all we know is. Uh, no, not yet, I guess. Not yet, like they haven't gotten right. to the, what, you know, the yeah, in all fairness, yeah, yeah. In all fairness, too, it doesn't look like the Trump campaign is, is at a point yet where it's interviewing potential candidates for uh, agriculture-related posts, at least in the, in, in the public way it has been doing so far. So, you know, we saw Rick Perry there. Um, there was also another sighting this week that was pretty interesting. Uh, the Irving mayor was she? She was spotted. I saw on social. Media. Wasn't this week? The New York Times, I believe, this may have been a wire photo, okay. published a photo this week, and it uh, appeared to picture uh, Irving Mayor Beth Van. I'm going to get this D- name wrong. D U I N E. D U I N E. Spell it out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in an elevator with uh, Michael Flynn at Trump Tower. Michael Flynn is Trump's mm-hmm. pick for national security advisor. Um, I do not believe she has. Uh, talk publicly about what she was doing there, but it's pretty clear she was in the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and she kind of has a bit of a national profile for her stances, uh, pretty aggressive stances against illegal immigration. So it would kind of make sense that uh, she would be in conversations with them. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Jim, you know, while Sid Miller has not been at Trump Tower yet, he has been busy posting fake news on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, pretty busy. Um, a couple of stories were, were recently uh, were recently posted, but uh, yeah, uh, we published a story. Y'all may have seen it. Uh, we found uh, 10 uh, definitively false or completely unsupported stories that uh, uh, Commissioner Miller had posted to Facebook in the past roughly two years or so. And those were we did not scroll through his entire uh, Facebook feed because uh, there's a lot to it. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, those were the ten we identified. And actually, Politifact had a had a post uh, today or yesterday um, uh, identifying another one that had to do with The Rock and a T-shirt he was wearing. Um, the Rock, like the Rock, the, like the, the actor, the, the Rock, the what actor. Yes, um, uh, Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne, Dwayne Johnson. Yeah. Yes, sorry. Wait, now uh, I'm curious. What's he? Why is he interested in The Rock? Oh well, it was a he. Uh, right. He had posted a photo. It was photoshopped. Uh, the Rock was wearing a um, like stand oh, no. for the national anthem T-shirt in, in, in the Photoshop. And it was so, not really him in a T-shirt. Right, right. Yeah, it was pretty. And, and their argument or their pushback on the story was that uh, we're jealous of their social media following, right? Yes, yeah. That that, that was the uh, of the Rock social media following. We're getting all little tangled up here. We're getting all these social media musings uh, mixed up. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Sid Miller's. Um, uh, response to our story. Well, when I interviewed him for the story, he basically cut the interview short when I asked him about whether he should be accountable for you know, posting fake news um, and then accused us of, of being fake of, news. Of being fake news. Yes, uh, drumming up fake news. Uh, we have different definitions of fake news, apparently. Um, and then um, uh, after our story was posted, he he said that the Tribune, you know, may be jealous of his, uh, it's like, Almost uh, 340,000 Facebook followers to our 75,000 at the time. So, yeah. and he said uh, that while sharing your story to his 340,000 right, followers, which really I think probably boosted our our clicks on that. Yeah, so. I think it's now you know 100,000 yeah. fa- yeah. <laughs> Facebook. You got to give him credit. He has a pretty massive following on Facebook. Yeah. I don't know about Twitter. Twitter's not so much. Twitter's like a little different. 5, but, Tons and of people love fake news. posting on Facebook. He has all these regular features. The flip side to that is I would argue that he has a greater responsibility uh, due to that massive following to not share fake news. Well, so. and as an elected, I mean, 
every human, but more so as an elected official. Oh, of course, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I forgot about that. Part. And, and also, <laughs> not know the difference. I mean, does he really legitimately not? You know, his explanation for this was basically this stuff isn't. It seemed like he was saying this isn't fake. You know, I mean, what is his definition of fake news? I, I got the vibe that he was saying I'm, I'm going to put it out there and people can decide for themselves whether it's fake or not. Yeah, I mean, that's literally what he, what he said. He said, um, "We we report, you decide." You know, the the Fox News slogan. <laughs> right. Um, but it it is interesting too. I I think his definition of fake news now are basically stories he doesn't like or stories that he doesn't think should be reported as news. Um, we he also had a, a weird dust up in Amarillo about the. Uh, <laughs> oh my God! This is another. <laughs> all of I, this might be too long of a story to, no, to, to give us the cliff. Pretty give us the cliff notes version. Um, Miller ate a steak that he did not like. He said it was tasted more like prime rib. More like prime rib. Which he does not like. Which he does not like. By the way, prime rib is delicious. And I like ribeye better. He, um, <laughs> we should have a taste contest here on the guys. <laughs> he ended up complaining about it at this Amarillo restaurant, um, and then he left kind of a um, arguably nasty note or just a I did not like this steak. It was terrible. Note uh, on the table. He did leave a, an eighteen percent tip. I, th- I think oh, it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was on the back of his business card. Not, yes, as he, he, he also left his business card in in the middle of the plate. Um, and then an Amarillo TV station uh, must have gotten a call from somebody at the restaurant and and did a story about how Commissioner Miller does not like steaks at uh, Ohms Cafe or OHMS Cafe. Um, and then um, Miller called that fake news. Um, and then, except that was actually real news. Something he did. It, it's it something was based he did. On facts. I mean, I, I, also, I think you can to debate. his credit, at least yeah. he didn't drop his business card before the meal. At least he did it afterward. It was like you know the, when the secret restaurant critics. <laughs> he is the, the agriculture. Critic. I would watch a TV show where Sid Miller just shows up as an undercover yeah. restaurant critic across, at steakhouses across Texas. And if if, if they didn't, if they didn't clump his steak and he still left a twenty percent tip, that's pretty good on his part too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like at least in this regard. This is ultimately, this is really not fake news. I mean, Sid Miller, if he knows anything, he knows his way around the steak. That's true. Well, and, <laughs> and honestly, like, there's he almost. The commissioner. We're, we're, yeah, we're close to a policy angle because part of his job. No, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely serious. Part of his job is to promote Texas agriculture. Um, you know, the Go Texan program that uh, is, is one of his huge uh, pet projects. Um, this idea that uh, you're, you're buying. Texas grown products. Um, and uh, so so really quickly though there there was a little bit more to the steak story. He ended up uh, Are we getting closer to a policy angle? Ken Herman wrote a day two steak story. Um, there's a column about uh, his Yelp review. Uh, Sid Miller left a Yelp review that was nasty too. Does he have other Yelp reviews? Um, I'm I'm not sure if he did, but uh, that steakhouse, by the way, got 4.5 out of 5 stars mm. and a lot of reviews. And I saw that uh, uh, Miller reviewed a Dallas steakhouse on his Facebook page today or yesterday, and he said it was a great steak. Which one? Um, I can't remember. <laughs> Jim's steakhouse <laughs> opinions mean... are in high demand now. Excuse me, Patrick, the stakes are very high here. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right. <Anyway>. Switching gears. <laughs> Julian, grab that microphone. Uh, this to is... those of y'all still listening. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, all right. Well, this is not about stakes, but the stakes are also very high. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we had part four of our year-long bordering on insecurity project is uh, rolling out this week. It's it's basically a look at at how Texans Americans um, are complicit in you know leading to the sort of insecurity of the border. And there are three particular areas in which in which Texas is complicit. Walk us through this sort of stage of the series and what those areas are. So the uh... The part that we wrote about, I guess, um, in 
touched on all three of the issues uh, was yesterday, and that has to do mainly with the demand for cheap labor, um, the fact that we spend very, very little on treatment uh, for drug addiction, and we're the number one consumer, not we Texas, but we in the United States, uh, the number one consumer of the illicit drugs that are flowing our way, and the fact that um, the United States, and especially Texas, is very pro-gun and sort of bristles at any thought of any more gun regulation. Um, so, And yet our guns end up? Yeah, I mean, our guns end up in, in Mexico and, and probably in, in Central America. The story that we posted this morning said that uh, between 2009 and 2014, there were more than 76,000 guns that were uh, submitted for tracing in Mexico, and they had U.S. origins. Of those, only about 45% could be uh, authentically traced, and of those, the majority of those were from Texas. Mm -hmm. And they come in all shapes and sizes, handguns, long rifles, semi-automatic rifles that can be converted into fully automatic rifles. Um, it, you know, it just kind of goes to show, uh, as far as on the southwest border, you hear a lot of folks saying that there aren't enough Border Patrol agents. There are 17,500 Border Patrol agents on just the four border states. There are fewer than 2,400 ATF agents, ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives that regulates the gun sale industry. So, I mean, can you imagine if somebody, if Obama said, I'm going to put 5,000 more Border Patrol agents on the southern border, everybody would say, okay, it's about time, thanks. But if on the flip side he said, I'm going to put 1,000 more federal agents to regulate you know, gun trafficking, people would go crazy and Texas would probably file a lawsuit. Yeah, or we're going to spend millions of dollars on improving drug treatment right. in Texas so that there are fewer, exactly. there's less demand, or, oh, I mean, you know, God forbid, hey, construction, you know, industry, hey, business industry, we're going to sort of really dip, you know, right. tramp, tamp down on your ability to hire these folks. And the, uh, the employment part, out of the three, and the treatment part is also very important. I think uh, we reported yesterday that there's about... Um, 6% of the folks that need treatment in Texas can actually afford it on their own without state help. Mm -hmm. The state help that goes to that program is mainly for uh, incarceration and cracking down on drug offenses versus treatment. But the employment factor is something that Texas, uh, I think, has to look itself in the mirror and say, okay, this is a major problem. Every session there are bills that would, uh, that would mandate E-Verify for the private industry. They never even get a hearing. Uh, even our own E-Verify policy, and E-Verify is the federal uh, program that, that verifies employment information to make sure somebody's authorized to work here. Uh, you know, it, it, it's the, the timeline, it's a very complicated and kind of silly history with Texas. 2014, at the end of it, Governor Perry, uh, former Governor Perry, has an executive order demanding that all state agencies and contractors use E-Verify. Um, Nobody was in charge with enforcing it. He even made a mistake and says this applies to current employees. You can't really do that. Last session, uh, Senator Schwartner actually codified the policy, but then there's a gray area. So where do we have to use it for contractors and subcontractors? There was even a lawsuit that was going forward. They had to reach out AG's opinion. But honestly, if E-Verify was mandatory for even the private sector, it would go a long way into folks not being allowed to hire people that don't have uh, documents. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you and Alexa also have spent a year on this project, right. a year looking into this these issues of, of, you know, how secure is the border and, and sort of what are the implications? Right. I mean, after this year, what are the takeaways for both of you? What What is sort of the single most compelling thing that you've, you've learned this year? I mean, I think it's sort of two-parted. I think there's... One part is sort of a huge lack of understanding of why people are fleeing and where they're coming from. There's sort of this misperception that the biggest influx of undocumented immigrants is from Mexico, and we've learned that it's not. It's people fleeing danger and violence and murder in, in Central America. And I think the second part is that there's sort of 
what seems like apprehension or maybe sort of it might be more political in terms of Republicans who are the ones calling for more um, things to deter illegal immigration, but sort of not looking in the mirror at some of these things. You know, there's all of this DACA and DAPA are the magnets for people who are leaving their countries, but then there's no sort of analysis on, on our role in it in terms of the employment aspect right. of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think just covering this for a number of sessions is the disconnect between the two, between the left and the right has has grown so far wide. I mean, it, you know, the the folks that were anti-sanctuary cities in 2011, they didn't want cops being able to racially profile. Now they're saying, don't even check people that go to, you know, that are in our jails, which I think a lot of even moderate Democrats were like, well, wait a minute, you know, that's a little a little far out there. We're on the far right. It, it's things like, like fake news or just sort of propaganda that don't really speak to the facts and just like build the wall, send everybody out. But again, when you say, okay, we'll stop hiring them, then they kind of pause and scratch their heads. So mm-hmm. I just think that the conversations on both sides have become a little bit more extreme. Not not everybody, there is, there is a center and there are people that are willing to talk, but I think as far as the groups that want either A or B, they've just grown so far. That that wide, that that distance between A and B has grown so so much right. further apart. Right. Well, just a reminder: if you're watching on Facebook, you can send questions our way. Uh, Alexa, I want to come back to you to talk about an issue you've been writing about the last couple of weeks, and that is this: um, these disagreements over uh, what to do with fetal remains. What you know, what remains after miscarriages or abortions um, in in clinics, and uh, tell us sort of what the status is, what rules have been put into place, and and what the the fight is all about. So after after the state sort of very quietly proposed new rules, um, just last week it announced that it was enacting rules that would um, keep abortion providers and hospitals and other healthcare facilities from treating uh, fetal remains the same way that they treat other medical waste. And that means that fetal remains must now be cremated or buried um, after an abortion or a miscarriage, so not just targeting abortion providers. And so no, they can no longer be disposed of in the same way that other sort of medical waste that comes out of hospitals might be disposed of. And how how is that other waste disposed of? I mean, what's like what's the difference that we're talking about here? So the, not to be like graphic or gross, but I think this is important. To yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, the, the, most hospitals sort of contract with waste management companies. Um, Those that, like red boxes you see in healthcare facilities yes, that are like yeah. You know, so they right. sort, they specialize in medical waste, and and one of the most common ways is um, waste is incinerated, and then it's it's. De- deposited in sort of these sanitary landfills, not mm-hmm. usually not municipal landfills. They're specific for these sort of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're treated and incinerated and everything sort of just goes into the same incinerator and it's um, that's how it's disposed of. The you know cremation and burial has always been an option for fetal remains. There are sometimes couples who miscarry and want to have a burial for mm-hmm. um, the remains of that fetus, but other women you know miscarry and, and sort of want the hospital to deal with it. And so this is now sort of limiting their options in, in terms of what is done with the fetal remains. Mm-hmm. And so you know. Uh, this seemed to me like maybe the funeral directors would think this was like really a big opportunity for them to make a lot of money in this field, but they have had the opposite take on this, right? Well, the, you know, they had been fairly quiet. Funeral directors. <laughs> well, I mean, if they have to, <laughs> it's not, if it's they not have, cheap. well, if they have to be right involved in like all of these, I assumed they'd be making a lot of money. Yeah. 
off of this? Well, they they had been pretty quiet and and they they've yet to sort of take a definitive position on this, while at the same time saying they have a lot of concerns about some of the costs associated with this. Um, the state has said that this will only cause healthcare facilities a couple hundred thousand, a couple hundred more dollars a year, and they're saying you know that's pretty unrealistic when you take into account the cost of cremation and burials. And you know there's a lot of uncertainty about where fetal remains will be buried, where they will be stored after cremation. Um, and so they, their concern is that the numbers the state is using are probably off. And they, you know, sort of echoing what medical professionals have said themselves, it's, there, there are a lot of concerns about who's actually going to pay for this. And in the end, if some of these costs are going to be passed on to patients. And, you know, yes, we're talking about women who get abortions, but we're also talking about women who miscarry. Right. I mean, is this the new frontier in how abortion legislation gets passed in Texas? I mean, this sort of this rulemaking is really an interesting realm because this is something that happens basically without lawmakers, you know, mm -hmm. without sort of the traditional process. And this cremation or burial thing okay. was something that Abbott had pushed for, right? I mean, I think he was even fundraising off of this issue. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of soon after we discovered the new rules and, and they, they were proposed in sort of, you know, it's meant to be public, but it, you kind of have to be checking. It's a little bit obscure. But it was done through this rulemaking process sort of a couple months ahead of the legislative session when you would theoretically have hearings and, and you'd have reporters all over it. And so it was, you know, Abbott very quickly sort of staked his claim in the proposal and was fundraising off of it a couple of weeks after that. Um, and, you know, his office has not shied away from saying that this is something that they want. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I mean, I think there, there were questions about as to why it was done through this rulemaking authority instead of during the legislature when you might have more in, might have more input from the public but yeah. because it did cause you know it did stir up a lot of concerns among both reproductive rights community and the medical community we ended up having these two public hours long public hearings mm -hmm. thousands of comments were submitted to the agency and really very little changed in the rules as they were originally proposed I've, I haven't seen a lot of political dialogue on this and maybe because it's just not a perfect comparison but this is exactly what a lot of Texas politicians hate about the federal government That's which right. is that right. a lot of these uh, regulations that they're they've been fighting for years were done without the consent or input from Congress were done through rulemaking processes at the agency and department level and so again maybe it's not a perfect comparison but as i hear you describing how this and, this has happened it reminds also, me it, of that it kind of reminds me too of a lot of the uh, epa regulation debates um not only because of the the rulemaking process but also this idea that you know the cost will be passed on to the consumer i mean that's like every time the epa tries to regulate power plants like that's like the first sure. thing mm -hmm. that comes out was, i was just going to ask if it, i mean it seems like all the issues that, that pertain to women's health there's a, a subsequent lawsuit once the bill is filed is there is there already talk about going to the courts to stop this? Yeah, absolutely. The The Center for Reproductive Rights, which represented abortion providers in the lawsuit against the 2013 restrictions, quickly warned the state, if you go through with this, this will likely lead to costly litigation. The state is still trying to figure out how much it's going to have to pay in legal fees for that lawsuit about the 2013 restrictions. And so they very pointedly mentioned that in their response. But yeah, I mean, I think absolutely we'll see a, a lawsuit. I, I don't really have a lot of doubt about that. And, and it's at the same time, though, the legislature's coming back in January, and there's already been a bill filed to write this rule into law, and so mm -hmm. that'll sort of add a little bit more into the mix. Right. A, a couple questions on Facebook. Question from Brooke. Um, Two-part question. First of all, is the patient responsible for the cost of this? And second, what happens to the remains from a cremate 
a cremation after an abortion. So what do you do with the remains then? Well, that that's that's one of the questions. The way the way it's set up is um, it's interment, mm-hmm. um, and the way the state defines interment is cremation, burial, you know, all sorts of sort of that sort of thing, and then or cremation followed by burial, placement in a niche, or sca- ashes scattered, mm-hmm. um, sort of under federal law. But again, the the medical professionals who are now responsible for doing this have similar questions mm-hmm. themselves. There, there's not a lot of clarity on that just yet. Right. Um, well, Patrick, you brought up something that I wanted to talk about, and this was this sort of conflict between, you know, um, Texas. the Texas GOP is really used to having Washington at as its foil. And, you know, what happens now that, that you know, there are there's a Republican in the White House, there are all these Republicans in top, you know, in, in top posts. One of the issues that um, Abbott has been pushing for is this convention of states to sort of um, find ways to rewrite or, or deal with different amendments to the Constitution. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick has, I guess, also jumped on this bandwagon as something that should be approached. How does this sort of fit with the new administration? Yeah, we saw Abbott address this issue head on yesterday, actually, in uh, some prepared remarks to a convention of states uh, rally at the the Capitol here in Austin. Uh, He spent a decent section of the speech, you know, trying to or working to square that new political reality you mentioned with having Republican control in Washington. Um, with this convention of states push. He had a pretty big rollout for it um, back in January. He released a 70-page plan as part of that. Uh, He called for convention of states, proposed, I believe, nine constitutional amendments. Um, He put out a book on it uh, a few months later. He went across the state promoting the book. Um, so this has been a big issue of his. And now that we have a legislative session upon us, uh, you know, he's trying to kind of uh, renew the push a little bit. And as we saw yesterday, you know, he, you know, put forward this argument that it's still relevant or still needed under a Republican president. Um, you know, he expressed, uh, he said he was encouraged by the fact that, you know, for example, Trump has uh, endorsed the idea of term limits, which is a constitutional amendment that these states' rights supporters have long been pushing for, and that could be included in a convention of states. Congressional um, term yes, limits. Yes, yeah. I believe so. Right. Um, but I th- maybe I was just referring yeah. just to the idea in general of mm-hmm. limiting elected officials from serving for too long. Um, and so, yeah, it's interesting. It's just another chapter in this new dynamic where it's like, how do Texas Republicans navigate uh, this new power structure, um, you know, and, and how do they um, navigate these new political waters where they're, they're not going to be um, in opposition to everything that comes out of Washington for the next well, four and, eight and years? You're seeing it in even fundraising emails. We're looking at some of um, Governor Abbott's latest <laughs> emails, and you know, they're they're all sort of a little dramatic with a lot of exclamation marks and, yeah. and warnings, but they even said, you know, we, we need to remain vigilant even under a Trump administration, which, you know, it's a little, I was taken aback a little bit when I saw that because you're so used to seeing these emails pointing to the feds and Democrats in Washington and how problematic they are for Texas. And now it's sort of flip the script or at least they're having to adjust some lines. Well, and they're certainly not sure about Trump. I mean, yeah, if you exactly. look at, if you yeah, look at the even, numbers in yeah. Texas, you know, the election numbers in Texas, you know, there was clearly some anxiety. So, But is this Convention of States idea picking up a little steam? I mean, Abbott, you know, promoted it. It seemed like it sort of went nowhere. And then it seems like there's been more conversation about it lately. So for a convention of states to be called, um, 30-some, I believe 34 state legislatures have to pass resolutions officially applying for it. I believe so far only eight states have done so. Um, States' rights supporters at the national level have kind of latched onto the idea that 
um, you know, once Texas adds its name to the list, that will kind of like break the dam and everyone else will be rushing to, you know, pass their resolutions. Uh, we saw a lot of language or rhetoric to that effect yesterday at the Capitol. Um, so right now, as far as, you know, where this push stands, um, you know, it's, it's not far along. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm ready to talk about tampons. <laughs> Which one of you wants so to? So are they. Yeah, I know. I see three guys who are totally ready. Um, on well, my phone. Yep. <laughs> Patrick immediately looks down. Who wants to tell it? So what's going on with the legislature? And I didn't even, honestly, until we wrote this story, I didn't even realize that tampons were taxed. And I'm really? so offended. <laughs> I guess I hadn't paid close attention all those years. I know. Well, yeah. So um, Alexa will. Take I will. Here. I will take. Yeah. A couple <laughs> of Democrats and including and one Republican have filed uh, legislation to remove taxes from tampons. And I think the way they do it is you designate it as sort of a medical item, and, and that pulls the tax from it, um, which of course would cost a couple of million dollars because. There are a lot of women, and a lot of women buy tampons, mm -hmm. um, and so I think it'll it'll be interesting to see how that goes through the legislative session. It's it seems like like the 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 fiscal hit would be where the pushback would be, right? Because I think on the story that we posted, it was I mean it wasn't the double di digits of, of millions yeah. of dollars mm -hmm. per mm -hmm. session, mm -hmm. right? Wow. But yeah. but on the flip side, we have a weekend. Uh, after Senator Creighton passed legislation to give yeah. uh, hunters a tax-free weekend for guns and ammunition, and that costs uh, eleven million dollars. Oh, right. Good work, Julian, doing your homework. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Just, and, I mean, it's just interesting that the. I mean, it made sense once you read the, the story, and I think it was the woman in it was at uh, Representative Springer's district mm -hmm. that said, you know, if I want to buy a Coke or I want to buy, you know, that's something that's a luxury. That's my choice, but this is something that I need. Right, you know, right. I just I don't see the argument against it. I mean, our, we had a, a question on Facebook from Mary: Is there a sales tax on condoms? Um, I, I think uh, I read in our story that there that there used to be an exemption for condoms, but I think there is now a sales tax. I'm, I'm not sure when that expired. Yeah. I should check on also. diapers. I haven't it's actually hadn't considered that. I mean, there are all these things that like sort of are, you know, a medical necessity or there's right. really, you know, no way around it. But then I guess the question is like, where do you draw the line? Right. right. Well, and, and I think with, with the tampons is sort of, you know, the, the fact that that Drew Springer now is sort of in the mix and you have an actual Republican pushing for it, that might help get it some traction. But I think, you know, I was one of the bills that Julian and I looked at a couple of weeks ago, the wording of it was, oh, it right. just seemed to be set up like it was sort of like a tax-free weekend on tampons and then you just like, you know, stock up for the rest <laughs> of the year. It was like, a, there was a, it was a it weekend? Wasn't, it, it wasn't exactly like that, but the way it was worded right. in the in the description of the bill basically was, sounded like that. I think it was a, uh, it was uh, Brian Guillen's bill that was yeah. worded a little bit awkwardly. So, but mm -hmm. yeah, that's why I showed it to you because it did sound like it was only a temporary, during a temporary, um, you know, a, a weekend or a, or a week or whatnot. You got to do your like estimating <laughs> for the whole year. You put them in your follow up shelter, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right, exactly. Um, I, I was thinking it was, it was kind of interesting, particularly to see a Republican propose this bill to, uh, I mean, obviously Republicans like tax cuts, but isn't this probably one of the more um, progressive type of tax cuts you can make since everybody has to buy them? And, yeah. Yeah, well, since about half of the population yeah. has well, to buy them. Yeah, I mean, I Sometimes we do, you yeah. know, for, for the other. It's half. true. Yeah, I, I Way to go. Right. Yeah, spouses, <laughs> uh, right, brothers, the whole nine yards. So, But I think more seriously, though, it... it it's sort of, you know, the same way that there's a debate over women's health and funding for contraception and, and things that fall, the responsib responsibility or sort of the cost a lot of the time just falls on the woman. And this is one of 
one of those areas where maybe it's something that could be sort of, you know, technically an easy fix, but obviously the money will come into play. Right. Uh, and Bobby just notified me that diapers are subject to sales tax. Huh. And, you, you know, go. honestly, if you did the analysis of that, it would probably be a humongous right. financial mm-hmm. hit from a tax standpoint. So... All right. Uh, well, that's all the time we have today. If you have questions or comments, you can email them to tribcast at texastribune.org. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for doing our music. And on behalf of Patrick, Julian, Jim, Alexa, uh, and our producers Todd and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. You guys are so cute. Yeah, one